I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, we're going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. But before we get into what that is, let's talk about some paranormal news. Recently released documents of the UK's Ministry of Defense shows that for decades the MOD, Ministry of Defense, didn't know how to handle the UFO cases that were piling up. And I'm talking for years. According to one Royal Air Force wing commander, he urged caution on shifting focus away from UFOs. He argued that as the Ministry of Defense had not carried out any study of the UFO data that they had collected since the 1970s, it was not credible and also politically risky to continue to claim that UFOs posed no threat to the realm. And these documents went from 1967 all the way up to 2009. The Ministry of Defense collected information about UFOs without ever really investigating the claim. In 2009, they closed the department that was handling the UFO cases, or not handling the UFO cases, as the case may be. So, it's not just our government that seems to be bungling how to do scientific research as to what UFOs are. That seems to be a worldwide problem. They don't want people to know about them, but they don't want to investigate them enough to let people what they should know or shouldn't know about it. Either that or they already know about it. They're just appeasing us by collecting this information and then doing nothing with it. And to be honest, I'm kind of leaning towards the second one. Also in the news, a real quick story, but it seems that Bigfoot is being spotted in New Jersey. So, if you happen to see a large hairy creature in Jersey... It might be a Sasquatch. All right, that's about it for paranormal news. There was a couple other little stories, but I want to get into the Diet Loft Pass incident. So there's only one more thing I got to do before we get into it, and that's what I need you guys to do. I need you guys to go over to Patreon, search for Paranormal Almanac, or I've posted the link in Facebook so you can check there as well. But get on over to Patreon, and for as little as a dollar a month, you'll have access to behind-the-scenes videos and photos as well as cool rewards from me. Now, I'm going to do a lot of fun stuff on there. I'm still trying to figure it out. I did a full... Well, I'm not going to... I did a video that is a really neat video, in my opinion, and I hope they like it, too. I hope the Patreons like it, that is. Uh, Laura and Daniel, you guys are awesome. They're the first of hopefully many to experience what the Patreon page has to offer, and I'm also taking requests on the Patreon page. If you want more of this, less of this... Whatever you guys want, I want to make it the go-to place for all of us to get together and chat. And you're going to get a lot more content than you would get just from listening to the podcast. Oh, and speaking of uh, Laura and Daniel, I just got the Paranormal Almanac stickers delivered this week, so you guys should be getting them relatively soon. As soon as I get your addresses, I'm going to send them out to you with a couple other little fun things. Oh, and um, one last shout-out to a very cool international listener. Kiralee. God, I hope I said that right. K-I-R-R-A-L-E-E. Kiralee. 
We've had a lot of fun chatting back and forth on the Facebook page. She is insanely cool. I really dig it. Not insanely like bad, but just she's crazy cool. No, that's even worse. She is just cool. She is straight up cool. I enjoyed chatting with you on Facebook, so I wanted to give you a shout out on this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening and telling your friends about Paranormal Almanac. Okay, now that the fun stuff's out of the way, let's get into this one. It's one that's taken a lot longer than usual to separate fact from fiction. There is a lot online, and I mean a ton online, about this incident, but from what I can decipher, about 50% of what people are posting actually happened or is actually true. Now, I'm here to tell you that this is not going to be a debunking episode. Something happened on a Russian mountain in 1959, but what it is, is really hard to say. So, let's dive right into this one. So you've already heard me say it a couple of times already on this episode. It's called the Diet Love Pass, and here's what it is. The year was 1959. A nine-member skiing-hiking expedition that had gone missing weeks before in northern Urals of the Soviet Union. These are mountains up in the Soviet Union. Now, their frozen bodies were found near their campsite on a mountain called Kolat Siakl. That's K-H-O-L-A-T. S-Y-A-K-H-L, and I'm pretty sure I got that right. I hope I did. Which, according to Russian sources and the native indigenous people, that mountain, Kolat Siakl, means dead mountain. And once again, that's to the indigenous Mansi language, but I'll talk more about that possible connection later. So just keep that in mind. I probably won't be saying Kolat Siakl much longer. I'll just call it the dead mountain. But anyhow, so... It's a nine-member skiing and hiking expedition. It was made up mostly of students and graduates from the Ural Polytechnic Institute a few hundred miles away in Yekaterinburg, and it was then called Sverdlovsk. Sverdlovsk. The team were young, and they were fit, and they had set out on January 27th to reach another mountain about seven miles away. That's it. It was a seven-mile hike. Sure, it was a very rugged terrain, but it was seven miles. Also, each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, I know I said nine team members earlier, we're going to get to that, but right now, they started out as a ten-person team. There were eight men and two women. Now, all of them were experienced grade two hikers with ski tour experience, and they would be receiving grade three certification upon their return of this trip. So again, it is very grueling, it is very treacherous, but these people knew what they were doing. These weren't some day campers that just decided to go up in the mountains. These people were up there a lot. Now at the time, the grade three was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union, and it required the candidates to traverse 190 miles. So again, keep that in mind. I know I'm kind of like beating a dead horse here, but there's a reason for it. These people were experienced hikers, and it's going to come into play in just a little bit. Now, this route, it was in February, was estimated at a Category 3, which is the most difficult. So, difficult hike, in bad weather, but it was doable and had been done before. So anyhow, on January 27th, they began their hike towards Ortorton, but on January 28th, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, who suffered... He suffered a lot of severe health ailments, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, 
He was forced to turn back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. And as it turns out, he was the lucky one. Anyhow, they set off for Gora or Torton, which means don't go there in Mansi. Again, more on that later. And on January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area where they began to prepare for climbing. Oh, and also in a wooded valley, they stocked up on supplies. I'm talking surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. Water, everything they would need. So they already got their supplies. They're not running low. It's only been a couple of days. One guy had to turn back. We're down to nine people. So that's seven men and two women. The following day, February 1st, they were almost immediately hit with snowstorms in that narrow pass. Because of the decreasing visibility, it caused the team to lose their kind of sense of direction, and rather than moving towards Otorton, they accidentally deviated their course west and found themselves on the slope near the top of a nearby mountain. They pitched their tents on the eastern slope of Kolat Siakul, which again means dead mountain. So they didn't mean to go to this direction. They kind of got lost. They didn't know where they were going. There was a snowstorm. So they bunkered down where they could. And again, it was on the slope near the top of the dead mountain. Before they even left for the trip, though, Dietlov, who was the leader, had agreed that he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai. Now, it was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Dietlov had told Yudin, the man that had to turn around and go back, that he expected it to be a little bit longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction. They just said, well, that's just kind of delays that happen up on the mountains. And again, delays of a few days were very common on these types of expeditions. This wasn't the first one. It was not until the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation on February 20th, 19 days after they had to hunker down. And that's when the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, and it was consisting of mostly of volunteer students and teachers, all of whom had that grade two hiking experience. Now, a little bit after this, police and military investigators were also called in because they couldn't find the people. You, know, you got to remember, they expected them to go along one trail, one path, but because they got lost in the snow, they weren't where everybody was expecting to find them. They were a little bit farther to the west and up the mountain. So it's not that inconceivable that the volunteer students and the teachers never located them. But anyhow, a little bit after that, the police and the military investigators went up there in planes and helicopters, and they were the ones that eventually spotted the campsite. Now, what they found is bizarre. And I mean bizarre. It is incredibly bizarre. You're going to hear the details in a little bit. And what happened to these campers is still a mystery to this day. There's a lot of theories, but there's still a mystery. And what they did find was the military and the police got there. They found a bizarre, almost crime scene. It's the best way I can think of describing it. First up, the skier's tent had been sliced open from the inside and hurriedly abandoned. Now, depending on where you do your research, it was either sliced right down the side or sliced at the top. There is one theory that they were cooking in the tent. It was a very large tent, so they were all inside there. They were cooking in the tent, and the 
the fumes got to them or the smoke got to them, so they cut a hole in the top so they could continue to cook while hanging out in the tent. But there is no proof of that. In fact, if you look at the photos of the tent, to me personally, it looks like it was slit the entire length down the side. But anyhow, their belongings were still inside the tent and things that they needed to survive. We're talking climbing gear, clothes, food, heaters. Everything was still inside the tents. But the skiers weren't. Whatever happened to them happened quick and seemingly violent. Now, the military or the KGB or the police did eventually find the hikers, and some were almost a mile away from the tent and buried in 13 feet of snow. But this was no avalanche. Where they were found was not avalanche conditions, but they were still found in 13 feet of snow a half a mile away. Now, the placement and conditions of the bodies were also odd. They weren't just lying there. Some were in a crouched position. Some were in a hiding position. Some were flat, splayed out. Something happened. And one of the best sources that I could find for the information was an article that was written in 2013. So I'm kind of going to read this one a little bit verbatim to the article. I'm going to throw little things in here or there. But basically, this is what the article said. Investigators found footprints in the snow of eight or nine people who were wearing socks, a single shoe, or a bare foot. Remember, these people had all of their gear right there with them. Yet, they were in socks, a single shoe, some were barefoot. The footsteps led towards a dense forest, but disappeared after about 500 meters. Now, the first two bodies they came across of two men were barefoot and dressed only in their underclothes. They were found at the edge of a forest near the remains of a fire, so they did have the presence of mind to light a fire and stay around it. The next three bodies included Igor Dyatlov, the leader, and another man and a woman. Now, they were found between the fire and the tent, suggesting that they had been trying to return to the tent, perhaps to get supplies. No one knows what happened. For these people, autopsies failed to find any evidence of foul play, just for these people so far. Now, an inquest concluded that all five had died of hypothermia, and that would explain them being undressed. Unfortunately, hypothermia has a side effect of making the person feel hot and actually removing the clothing they need to stay alive. But that doesn't explain the men by the remains of a fire. Again, they seem to be in their right minds enough to make and stay by the fire. And it doesn't say if they had a hard time, if they never really got the fire going, if it was like two twigs. It doesn't give that much information. So I'm taking fire with a grain of salt. Now, two months later, however, the partially dressed bodies of the other four members of the team were discovered in a forest ravine not far from the first two bodies. They appeared to have suffered traumatic pressure or crush injuries. And here's where it gets gross. And the tongue of one of them, one of the women, had been ripped out. Otherwise, there were no external injuries, but tests conducted on their bodies and clothing showed small traces of radiation. And that will come up later in a possible explanation, but remember, radiation. Now, the investigators concluded that the skiers died because they, they encountered, quote, a natural force they were unable to overcome. And every source that I could find online 
used that phrase, a natural force they were unable to overcome. And that's it. That was the investigator's conclusion. And if that explanation wasn't odd enough for you, public access to the site where they were found was banned for three years. The entire slope side of the mountain, from the tents to the bodies, was closed to the public for three years. Now, the results of that investigation were classified, and this wasn't a, you know, this area is too dangerous, let's block it off indefinitely. This was a three-year investigation that was closed off to the public. They said, nope, nobody can go up there until we're done investigating this scene. And it took them three years. Now, what could have possibly been the reason behind such a long and classified investigation at the scene? Remember, we never found out what the details were of that investigation. It was classified. And it's not like this was some easily accessible spot. This wasn't a livable spot at all. It was a rugged location that was investigated for years up the side of Dead Mountain. Now, obviously, something bizarre happened. The variety of the ways that people died from blunt force trauma to having a tongue removed, that's insane. But then there are the people that simply froze to death or walked almost a mile away from the tents that, again, the tents were cut open from the inside. These tents weren't slid down the mountain from an avalanche. I could understand it if the tent was slid down the mountain halfway and it was because of an avalanche. The only way these people could get out of the tent was to cut it open from the inside. I totally get that. But the campsite was more or less intact from what it looks like and from what I can find online. And it still doesn't explain the traces of radiation on their clothing. Now, it wasn't like the entire area had traces of radiation. It was on every hiker's clothing. So what does that? What causes the hiker's clothing, some of which had been removed because of hypothermia, supposedly, what causes the radiation to show up on just their clothing and nowhere else? It makes no sense to me. Now, there are a lot of theories of what happened up on that mountain, and I'll be honest, I'm not sure which one is the best, but here they are. First up is a natural phenomenon that, in my opinion, doesn't really explain the events, but here it is. Fireballs. There are reports that some eyewitnesses in the northern Urals saw fast-moving balls of fire in the night sky around the time of the Dyatlov Pass incident. And because of that, it's been suggested and kind of rather plausibly, that these were missiles, Soviet missiles, or Soviet rocket tests. But that might explain for the radiation, it might explain for, like, an explosion could have been right over the camp that caused a localized or mini avalanche, but it doesn't explain the tongue being ripped out, it doesn't explain the blunt force trauma unless it happened so close to the person, and if it did happen that way, why was there no mention of remains of a missile or remains of a rocket or explosions? There's no mention of it. Now, again, it was all classified, so it's plausible that that's what happened. But there's a lot more theories, so let's move on to the next one. And that next one is UFOs. Of course there was going to be a UFO theory on this one. Now, it explains the eyewitnesses seeing the fireballs, and it explains the radiation... Plus, it might explain why they freaked out so much and ran almost a mile. Now, 
again, this is all conjecture. Obviously, I don't have the answer to this event. So let's move on to the next one. Natural causes. Again, this is a possibility, but an avalanche wouldn't do what we saw. And a known animal, again, another natural cause, probably wouldn't do everything that we saw, especially wouldn't do the radiation. Now, the animal would be an explanation for the tongue, and I'll get to that later. So just keep that in mind. The next theory, it was people, or more specifically, it was the military. Now, this theory suggests that the hikers stumbled upon a secret military or KGB operation, and it ended in their deaths. It would explain the variety of deaths, the blunt force trauma, the pulled-out tongue could have been an interrogation to find out how many hikers were out there that night. It would also explain the three-year ban and the classified investigation. So again, as bizarre as it seems, that is a possibility. But now we're getting to the good one. It was a Yeti attack. So I'm just going to read a theory based on a June 2014 Discovery Channel quote-unquote documentary, and I mean quote-unquote documentary, and it's called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives. And this is from one of the press releases announcing the show's first airing. On February 2nd, 1959, nine college students hiked up the icy slopes of the Ural Mountains in the heart of Russia, but never made it out alive. Investigators have never been able to give a definitive answer behind who, or what, caused the bizarre crime scene. Fifty-five years later, American explorer Mike Lebecki reinvestigates the mystery known as the Diet Law of Pass incident. But what he uncovers is truly horrifying. Following the trail of evidence, Mike finds proof that the hikers were not alone. A photograph taken by one of the hikers a day before they died, it suggests they encountered a Yeti. Pretty intense, right? I would watch that quote-unquote documentary. I don't buy it, but I would watch it. And the reason I don't buy it is the supposed Yeti photo. And yes, I'll put this photo up on Facebook, and it's already up on Patreon. See? If you guys were supporting patrons for little as a dollar a month, you would already have access to that photo. But it's okay. All I gotta say is, it doesn't look like a Yeti to me. It looks like one of the hikers was hiding behind or walking from behind a tree. It looks like they're wearing a snowsuit and boots. It's very small. It doesn't look Yeti-sized. It doesn't have the broad shoulders. It's a shadow behind somebody, so obviously the camera wasn't focused on it. But even if it was, even if it was, I got to say, it's a tiny Yeti. If it was a Yeti, this is a tiny Yeti. It's like the mini Yeti, because there's no Yeti appearance to it, in my opinion. So anyhow, this theory suggests that the Yeti ripped out that woman's tongue. Why? I don't know. No idea. Now, for you skeptics, remember when I said I was going to get back to the tongue in a minute? Well, here you go. There is a reasonable explanation for her tongue, and that is her tongue was devoured by a scavenging animal, or it decomposed due to constant contact with the stream of running water where the body was found. And I gotta admit, it is incredibly reasonable that that's what happened to that woman. But here's where I give you a little bit more information about that sad woman's fate. It wasn't just the tongue that was missing. According to the Diet Law of Autopsy reports, she was also missing some soft tissue around the woman's eyes, 
her eyes themselves, eyebrows, nose bridge, upper lip, and cheekbone. So her eyes were gone, most of her face was gone, and her tongue was gone. She was still recognizable, they could still figure out who she was, but it's still a gruesome way to die. And again, that's not saying that some scavenger animal didn't do that. It is a possibility. But it is a bizarre possibility, considering she is the only one to have that happen to her. There was another body right by her, completely fine. None of the other bodies, none of the other eight bodies, had anything even remotely like that done to them. Sure, there was the blunt force trauma, but that was not a post-mortem animal attack. That looked like blunt force trauma that caused their deaths. So this next one, I'm not even going to try and debunk. So here it is. The next theory was infrasound. Now, there's an author, which I'm not going to give him credit because, frankly, the book sounds crappy and this theory sounds crappy. So anyhow, there's an author. He wrote a book about this incident, and it says that the skiers may have been driven to hysteria by infrasound waves caused by a weather phenomenon known as the Carmen Vortex Street. Now, what the hell is the Carmen Vortex Street? Well, it's an oscillating pattern that emerges when a fluid or gas, in this case wind, flows around a suitably shaped object, in this case the mountain, and when that occurred on such a large scale, these wind patterns can theoretically generate very low-frequency sound waves that have been blamed for harmful physiological and psychological symptoms in human beings. According to a 2001 review of the medical literature by the National Institute of Environmental Health Services, the symptoms could range from annoyance to fatigue to nausea. So that's the theory. The theory was that this Carmen Vortex Street drove them mad, just incredibly mad. Here's the problem, though. Acoustic scientists are very, very, very far from sure that infrasound exposure causes even the mildest symptoms, much less an extreme panic and everything else that happened to those poor people. So I'm going to say no to this one. But again, what do I know? Now, science has said this is BS, so I'm going with science. That's about it for the theories. I told you there were a bunch. But let's take a second and circle back to the indigenous Mansi people. Now, this one doesn't get a lot of coverage, and I don't understand why. It said that the Mansi people never traveled high up on the Dead Mountain and that they thought it was inhabited by spirits or creatures. Now, Mansi legend says that the Dead Mountain received its ominous name after nine Mansi warriors had mysteriously perished on that same peak a number of years before that. Now, this led to some investigators to surmise that the region might be cursed or infested by ancient and malicious spirits. There is also supposedly a creature that the Mansi say inhabit both the Dead Mountain and the Don't Go There Mountain, and depending on the sources, the creature does sound like a Yeti. So the Mansi people avoid the area. They completely avoid the area where the hikers were killed, and they've done it for centuries, it seems like. The Mansi consider it a sacred yet deadly area, again, that's inhabited by spirits or creatures, and frankly, weren't that surprised when the hikers were found dead up there. Whatever happened to the hikers, I'm going to say this, that if the indigenous people say, don't go to a certain area or you'll die, 
I, for one, will listen to them and not go to that certain area. It's that time in this episode where I ask this question. What do you think happened to the hikers? What is the most plausible explanation for everything? The radiation, the cut-open tent, the fact that some of the bodies seem to be in a crouched or hiding position when they died. The blunt force trauma. The blunt force trauma that was away from the campsite by almost a mile. So again, it's not in an avalanche range. What about the tongue? The face? The fact that it was only one body and not all the bodies that were attacked by whatever it was they were attacked by. What do you think? Because I just don't know. I tried to go in to debunk this one. It definitely happened, I can tell you that. It's a true story. A lot of the details, all of the details I could find on here, are supposedly true and have a lot of verifiable sources, including the autopsy reports and some of the investigations, but not that classified investigation, which I would love to get my hands on. So, again, I just don't know what to think of it. So, with that, I'm going to say... I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Okay, for those of you that stuck around after the music, one, thank you. I did that music. I hope you liked it. Two, the first five people that Facebook message me, I'm going to send you a Paranormal Almanac sticker. So if you want a sticker, be one of the first five to message me on Facebook saying you heard this secret message, and the keyword is sticker. That's all you got to do. Just say keyword sticker. And I'll know that you waited till after the music and listened to all of this. So that's your reward. Thank you very much. Bye.